This is Laura Van Arendonkbaugh, and you're listening to To Write and Have Written, a writer's guide to the business side. This is an audio recording of the weekly live stream where you can join us each Tuesday on Twitch. Details and a schedule of upcoming guests and topics can be found at lauravab.com. Now to this week's episode. Transition. Hey, we're live. Wee. So, hello, everyone. Uh, good evening, good morning, good middle of the day, good midnight, if that's where you are. Happy time zone. So, uh, yeah, I am Laura Venaren Donkba. This is To Write and Have Written, and this is the fifth Tuesday in the month, which means it's a field trip week. So instead of talking about businessy things or, you know, yes, grown up stuff, we get to go and do something fun. <laughs> this time, uh, we're still technically on topic. This is still going to be a world building uh, theme. But we're going to t- pull, uh, you, you've heard me say multiple times, you know, your best world meaning information is in history, because We've had thousands and thousands and thousands of years for people to try things and see how they worked. Uh, So we're going to talk about a period that nobody ever talks about, really, in U.S. history. But real quickly. um, (laughs) Oh, hi, Eerie Hollows, which is, by the way, one of the coolest usernames ever. Um, And hey, Sophie is here, too. Awesome. Okay. Anyway, um, I have no idea where I was. Oh, yeah. So we're going to talk. This is Elena. Where, where did I leave you? You're over here. Here we go. <laughs> this is Elena. One side uh, of the Elena. screen or the other. You got a 50% chance. I got, I got, a, I got a pick here. Um, Elena Van Arendonk, we are related with a name like that. Absolutely. Uh, but she also, uh, well, actually, do you want to just say what your history connection is? Like, why are you qualified to speak on this? I'm a nerd. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I, uh, I, have studied history formally. I, I minored in history at, uh, at the university level, and uh, I'm also part of a historic preservation organization. I am the secretary and a bunch of other titles of the Franklin Township Historical Society, which is uh, an Indianapolis-based organization, um, Franklin Township being part of Indianapolis. And uh, I've been on the board for about 19 18, 18 years, some a lot of years. Uh, so I have uh, become very familiar with. Yeah, it's pretty, I'm I'm a relic. I think is how that works. Uh, so I've become very uh, educated through necessity about the last couple hundred years since uh, the the settlement of this part of the country that I am located in and that our township is located in um, started around the 1820s. So pretty much from the 1820s up to present day, I, because I speak to school groups and, uh, you know, people come into our building and I give tours and I give uh, presentations and things, uh, I've had to become uh, knowledgeable about a lot of things from that period in particular. So I asked Elena to come here today to speak about the interurban, which is a word that some people know, but quite honestly, I'm really surprised at how few people uh, are familiar with the interurban and its place in U.S. history. So um, I, I'm just gonna I'm just going to introduce this with this is how equine influenza meant that your sewing machines got to run. That's where we're that's where we're gonna. That there, there's your hook right there. Okay. So, um, so what I thought is I'm, I'm just going to turn Elena loose to run with this and then ah! I'll jump in. Yeah. I'll jump in with where I have questions or want to expand or just want to nerd on something. And then absolutely please, of course, uh, throw questions in the chat. 
And my goal for this, this is very much like, like all the field trip kind of things is I want to go and explore something that's a little bit cool, but then please use this for both education and inspiration. Um, and you know, I, I get so many of my ideas or work things out to like, how can this possibly function by just filling up my brain with nonfiction? Like that's, uh, that's a great great way to do it. Just put all the pieces in there and let them jumble together. Uh, so yeah, so that's where we're going with this. Um, I, I think this is pretty cool. This is something that honestly, a lot of people, you know, I just had some, some, uh, friends in from out of town and we were down in Irvington where they still have some inner urban tracks visible. And I'm like, do you know what this is? They're like, no. And I'm like, yeah, too bad. You're duct taped to the wall now and I'm going to tell you. So <laughs> let's get in and do this. So, um, yeah, Bridger says, put all the pieces in there and let them jumble is hundred percent legit world building. Absolutely. This is why, you know, when we talked about ramen or when we talked about the, the murders in, um, the Galapagos islands or whatever, like you can just grab so many pieces but who would have thought that a high profile hostage situation is why cup ramen got big? Like, okay, like these are the kind of things you can grab and run with. So yeah. Oh, thank you for the sub, Shy Red Fox. I appreciate that. Okay, Elena, I'm going to stop get, getting in your way and let you like start with us. Where it's your stream. You can talk too. <laughs> Where are we going to start? Uh, we're going to start with the pandemic, except it wasn't actually a pandemic. It was an epizootic because uh, it was in the animal world and it was isolated to, I mean, it started regionally. It actually started in Canada and spread to the U.S. So in the early 1870s, there was a severe outbreak of a new strain of equine influenza that sickened thousands and thousands of horses. Um, and it started, most people think somewhere near Toronto and then spread because, you know, transportation was horse-based at that time. There was a a lot of contact between animals, cities were densely packed, Uh, and really your transportation options in the 1870s were horses for local or shorter distance travel or steam engines for longer distance travel because we did have steam trains, but there were not a lot of local non-equine-based options for transit except for walking, which did did not always work in some regions. You didn't always have the terrain for that. Um, So horses were used for deliveries. Horses were used for transportation for people and goods. Horses were used for carrying messages if you didn't have telegraph to certain areas. Uh, Everything was based around horses. And when thousands of horses got sick and died uh, in 1871 and 1872, people started realizing, hey, now that we've got this establishment of all these cities with lots and lots of people and lots of places we need to be going, maybe it's time to start thinking about making some means of transporting things that don't revolve around horses because the transit industry and the the goods delivery industries were crippled for months because all the horses were sick. Even the horses who didn't die were unable to work because influenza is very hard um, and it, it can be very damaging. So that started, that spurred people to start investigating other options. Now, steam engines were used for a lot of things, including children's toys, (laughs) Which that's that's another road we can go down. Why you shouldn't give your toddler a steam engine for Christmas? Actually, I, I want to spend um, like just a moment there. She's not kidding. Like, like you could get your kid a little locomotive and fire it up with a little boiler that was actually burning and boiling and occasionally blowing up. And like, let it might burn your house your down, house. but at least your kid will be happy. You know? Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, there were there were steam systems that were supposed to power your household appliances, and those went horribly wrong too. So anyway, that's that's a separate topic. But um, steam was not always practical 
for most situations, for a lot of the reasons we're talking about. It was loud. It could be dangerous. Uh, it required a lot of fuel. It required, you know, having hot steam coming out of things. So that while there were certainly steam powered automobiles, in fact, my, my great grandfather owned one, um, they, they were not a really practical way of transporting goods and people in on mass. Um, so over the next couple of decades, there was a lot of interest in electricity. Um, you had the Edison and Tesla wars going on during this time. Uh, and eventually, by the 1890s, electricity had been refined to the degree that it could power things like streetcars. So you began seeing electric cable systems in cities, you had streetcars that were powered, uh, you know, just like some of the trolleys that still run on electricity today in San Francisco and places, they all started around the turn of the century. And you would have a, a wheel or a hook with a line that ran to the streetcar and it would run down a cable system that was suspended over the street. And that's how it powered the streetcar. And around 1890, somebody got the bright idea, hey, if we're running electric streetcars in cities, why don't we make long distance electric rail travel? And that is the birth of the interurban. Um, in, by around 1890, there were still primarily horse-drawn modes of transit in cities. By 1897, horses were the exception to public transit situations. So you had horse-drawn streetcars and horse-drawn trolleys were almost entirely replaced by the turn of the century in most major cities. So this caught on very quickly. Um, cities were becoming electrified, major cities, not your small towns yet, we'll get to that, but the major cities were putting in electricity to power not just household uh, things and not just industrial concerns, but also public transit. And well, way, uh, then, every time I read a historical novel or watch a historical movie, it is always horses, 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 right up until 1921, when suddenly we have like, you know, the Auburn and the Duesenberg. Then, then you have <laughs> the really sexy cars. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, in some areas, if you were in a small town, you might not have electric streetcars. Uh, but yeah, it you know, the 1890s is when personal automobiles started becoming available uh, on a, I won't say a widespread scale, but they certainly were available if you wanted a special order one. Um, to give a personal example, I mentioned my great-grandfather. He had what is possibly the first personal car in, in Indianapolis. Um, a crowd gathered at the train station to watch it be offloaded from the train that delivered it, and that was in 1895, and it was a steam-powered car. He later replaced it with an internal combustion car about 1898 or 9, I think. I'm not sure on the dates on that. But this is the 1890s and people were driving cars. Um, there weren't a lot of them, but they existed. And by about 1905, there were so many cars in New York that there was actually a lawsuit from automobile owners trying to bar horses from public roadways because the horses were too slow and they were causing traffic jams because there were so many cars in New York City. So yeah, if you're, if you're reading a book and it's 1910 and there are only horses in a major city, it's not really well, people accurate. People are shocked shocked to see an automobile in uh, in 1917. Yeah, yeah I, I recently watched a production, I'm not going to name it, because that would be mean. But it, it offended me deeply, because it's supposed to take place in, I think, 1910, like right around there, you know, a little before World War One starts. And there's a crowd of people on Coney Island, and they watch a horseless carriage roll into view and they are shocked and they say but how does it move without horses and i'm staring at this going i'm sorry 1910 there were more cars than horses in the city by 1910 also, you know we have tanks right like <laughs> yeah. like, like like tanks <laughs> yeah just do your homework people okay sorry just had to that's fine veer off for a moment um 
So anyway, by by the mid-1890s, electricity was replacing horses for public transit in urban settings. Now, long distance was still primarily steam train. Uh, you know, more rural areas didn't necessarily have electricity because electricity was actually not considered a public utility at this time in history. Electricity was a for-profit enterprise. So if a company didn't think they could get enough profit from your town by running, you know, the very expensive infrastructure out to your town, they just wouldn't bother because if there weren't enough people in your town to make it worth them putting in the infrastructure, they weren't going to worry about it. And because it was a for-profit concern, and because we did not yet have the same kind of antitrust legislation that we do now, you had a lot of uh, monopoly situations where the power company would provide power to you know, the businesses, the, the homes, anything that they needed, they would also own the traction lines. They would also own the other concerns that used electricity. They would give themselves a cut rate. And then, you know, it, it was all, there was a lot of shady stuff going on with power companies and there were multiple power companies and they were in competition with each other. So uh, wait, you wait, didn't necessarily. Are you suggesting there might be corporate profiteering during the Gilded Age? Did, is that something I heard? Might there might be a reason huh. the term robber barons came into use? <laughs> yes. Um, Sorry. So um, yeah, we yeah. did we did get a comment from Shy Red Fox saying loving these rants, lol. So I said <laughs> I said good because they're probably not going away anytime soon. No, so, you're gonna yeah. have them for another forty five minutes. It's fine. Yeah. So uh, anyway, 1890s, um, people started looking at long distance options for electric rail travel. And the interurbans should not be confused with electric streetcars. They're very similar and they run on the exact same system, but the interurban cars are massive. If you see photos of them, they are enormous. They are you know, as big or bigger than a freight car, whereas the streetcars were more like the size of a city bus. So this it was capable of holding a lot more people and uh, they actually traveled at quite fast speeds. Um, the interurbans in, in the Midwestern area, now, now it, this is going to depend on your terrain partly because they are trains and if you have tracks with a lot of curves in them or a lot of uh, elevation changes, obviously they're going to have to go slower. But it was pretty common in the Midwest for interurbans to travel between 60 and 80 miles an hour. When, this is an, an era when it, 30 miles an hour was considered fast for a car uh, in, in a standard driving situation if it wasn't a race car or something. So they could go much faster than personal vehicles could, which is one of the reasons they were so popular. And um, so the, the traction companies and the traction Traction refers to the type of system it was where you had rails and a rail car that was running off of a power line, basically. Uh, the traction companies were in fierce competition to see who could lay the fastest track and get the most customers. Um, in the Indianapolis area, and again, that's the area I'm most familiar with and the area I've done the most research on, there were actually seven traction companies in competition operating in and around Indianapolis itself. So you had the streetcars in downtown Indianapolis, but then if you wanted to go out to the towns surrounding Indianapolis, which at that time, you know, now they've all been absorbed by suburban sprawl because that's what happens with cities in, in uh, modern times. But there used to be smaller communities sort of circling the city that was maybe, you know, on a horse, it might be half a day's ride out. But if you were had an urban, you could get there in an hour. Um, so they, they were starting to lay these tracks out in sort of a spoke pattern from all the major cities. And by the early 1900s, by around, you know, 1908, 1910, it was said that you could get on an urban train in New York and travel 
all the way to Wisconsin without ever taking any other mode of transportation, if you didn't mind making a lot of changes and getting a lot of new tokens along the way, because they were run by different companies. Um, so that's how vast they were. They, they were spread out so much and connected so many of the major cities and to the smaller towns that it was really a great network. You could pretty much travel anywhere you needed to without hopping on a steam train or without finding somebody with a long distance uh, capable vehicle. Um, and they were they were super popular. They were not the safest mode of transit, but this is, again, the era of steam boilers and nothing was safe and anything could explode at any moment. <laughs> Um, so, you know, there were, there were occasional crashes, there were fatalities, there were derailments, just like you have with any other mode of, you know, cars are also not totally safe either. We have car crashes every day. Uh, airplanes are not entirely safe. There is no entirely safe mode of transit, but they were fairly reliable because there were so many of them. And a lot of the interurbans departed every hour because there were people commuting now. Um, you know, commuting wasn't really an option before because you had, uh, you didn't have a reliable, fast mode of transit to get from a suburban town to the big city. But if you were in a city that was now only half an hour away from the big city by interurban, there was no reason not to pay a token, hop on the train, go into the city where you could maybe get a better job. So this is really the birth of commuter rail. Um, so on that point, we have a question. Yeah. Um, Sherrod Fox asked about uh, the inspiration for the Ticket to Ride board game. So can you speak to that a little bit? Um, the Ticket to Ride is, as far as I know, and I, I have played the game a few times, but I do not know much about its development. Um, as far as I know, it is mostly just inspired by the idea of the competing rail networks of the steam lines. Uh, but it is true that the, the same pattern happened with the interurbans, where, you know, with the, the steam rail, you had all of the different railroad barons trying to claim as much territory as possible, put down their tracks, and so they had the right-of-way because they were there first. Um, the same thing happened with the interurbans where you would have different companies who were trying to get to certain areas, and if they got their infrastructure there first and they had the right-of-way on those rails, they could run their lines. And again, a lot of times the tracks were owned or leased to the power company that was providing electricity for them. So it was in their interest for a lot of reasons to make sure that they kept their, their right-of-way on those tracks because then they're making more money. And where are these tracks? Are these tracks like at a station outside of town or where, where are these tracks that are? It sort related? of depends on where you are. Um, so if you had a rail system, say a, a, uh, streetcar system in the city, you would probably have to transfer to the interurban system once you got to the city limits, except for if you were in a city that had a terminal that served both. Um, and I'm going to brag on Indianapolis a little bit here. Indianapolis was, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Indianapolis had the first Union Station train station in the world. It was built in the 18, started construction in the 1840s. And the first Union Station concept came from here because Indianapolis was a major rail hub in this part of the country, uh, served all of the major Crossroads of commercial districts around it. Yeah. yeah, there's a reason we got that nickname. Yeah. Um, and there were, there were so many different train lines running through the city, but if you got off of one train and you had to catch a train on a different line, you had to get out and walk to the next train station, which was inconvenient. So they built a union station, which means all the train lines would come in and dump their passenger traffic in the same building. So it was extremely easy for the people to say, oh, I got off of train line A, I need to be on train line C, I just walk across a couple tracks on the platform and get on the next train. The interurbans, which were also run by competing rail lines, uh, or traction lines in this case, 
also took a leaf out of the same book. And uh, in 1904, in Indianapolis, they built the world's largest traction terminal, uh, which was still standing until the 70s when they blew it up. I'll get to that. <laughs> but uh, it cost, at the time... Let me let me verify my numbers here because I have my notes here. While she's um, checking that, I just want to clarify very quickly because I've had this conversation and seen the confusion. Uh, the Union Station is not named for a Union Railroad line or a Union Railroad company, which I frequently have seen people think was the case. It is because that's where you brought many lines in to unite. So that was the Union Station. So, um, so yes, as Grace is saying, I've always wondered why every U.S. city seems to have a Union Station. Yeah, because because you, that way you could have your all your lines connect, and it became a much more, you know, it's a, it's a hub, right? Like like you can have it's multiple a very airlines system. arrive at the same airport is way better than having fifteen different a- airports. So right, yes, and that's that's exactly the way it was. You know, imagine <laughs> if you were trying to fly from place to place, and every leg of your flight you had to get out, get a taxi, drive across town to the next airport. It's ridiculous. So the Union Station makes perfect sense if you can lay the tracks to all come together. Um, and we have and another we question, still, but you oh. can finish your thing, and then we'll come back to it. Oh. Uh, all I was going to say is the seven the seven light rail service providers in and around Indianapolis joined forces and built the uh, Indianapolis Traction Terminal. It was built in 1903, opened in 1904 at a cost of a million dollars at the time, which adjusted for inflation is well over $30 million today. So it was not a small building. It was a very, very large, fancy building. Go ahead. Question. Um, our question was, were other countries trying to incorporate electric rail at this time? Or was it pretty specific to the U.S. at this time? There were certainly other countries that were utilizing electricity and um, building building infrastructure for it. I do not know when the rail surge hit, say, Europe. You know, th- there were there were definite uh, electric services going in at the same time, but I don't know if it happened the same decade or if they looked at us and said, "Oh." that's actually not a bad idea. Let's do that too. Um, simply because that's that's not my personal area, so I haven't researched those dates. Um, electric rail obviously caught on there. I, I mean, they, if we're going to look at mass transit, the U.S. certainly dropped the ball during the mid-20th century. We are well, cutting edge at this yeah. time, right? Yeah. yeah, we used to have mass transit. We don't now, um, but Europe does. Europe has a very uh, excellent train system and, and East pretty Asia decent. has some amazing yeah, a- systems. Asia too, is yeah. running the world in terms of their mass transit systems. They they're way ahead of everybody. Um, but you know, here we we basically gave up our right of way, and and there are reasons for this that I will get into if I have time. But in the mid twentieth century, right after World War II, uh, the U.S. did a lot of stupid things, and one of the stupid things we did was giving up the right of way for public transit systems. So now we can't install public transit systems because all the sections of where the track had been are now privately owned, and it would be prohibitively expensive to try to acquire those pieces of land back. So you want to see a rant go for down, a chat? Like when we get started on that one, yeah. <laughs> so anyway, back to back to the history parts and yes. save the rant for a bit. <laughs> so um, in in. Uh, around the beginning of the 20th century, you know, in that 1900 to 1905 is when these uh, union terminals started cropping up. And in Indianapolis, they wisely made the union terminal for the traction station also be the terminals for, or connect to the terminal for the streetcars. So you could come from Chicago, hop on an interurban, come down to Indianapolis via interurban network, get to Indianapolis immediately without leaving the train shed, step onto a streetcar and go to your final destination. 
So you aren't stuck trying to find a wagon to take you. You aren't stuck trying to find a cab or something else. Um, it's, it was a very efficient system. And interurbans continued in popularity for the next couple of decades, and they reached their peak in the 1920s. Uh, so by the 1920s, you had a vast, vast interurban network, um, especially in the Midwestern area, because we have we had a lot of farmland across. Uh, and Indianapolis, to take for example, Indianapolis is right in the halfway point between Chicago and Cincinnati, which were two of the biggest commercial shipping hubs in the country at the time. So we had a ton of traffic coming through. So it made sense for us to have a really expansive train network and our interurban network in the early in around you know 1915 1920 was by some reports the most expansive light rail system in the world just in this state so there were a lot of tracks um and they did a, a few things. I mentioned that they provided opportunities for commuters to come in and, you know, now be going into the big city or wherever, or, you know, farmers who wanted to make connections with the downtown markets or something, they could travel easier, they could transport goods more easily. Um, but they also provide a lot of opportunities for the towns they were servicing at home as well. So, to use the town I live in, I, I currently live in a small town, in what used to be a small town that is now part of Indianapolis because Indianapolis grew and just absorbed everything around it. Um, and the interurban came to the town where I live in 1904. And that was the first time electricity had been in this area. And since the interurban, which again, had deals with or sometimes were owned by the electric companies, uh, they had electricity that they built the traction lines out, they put in the power poles, they ran the cables, all of this stuff. And then they made it available to residents to buy electricity from the traction line. So for the first time in 1904, the town, the small town where I live, had electricity available. None of those residents had had a power company before who had serviced that area. So it really made a lot of uh, opportunities become available for people to develop their own homesteads, to, for people to get electric appliances that weren't battery powered. Because you had things like radios and stuff that were battery powered, but if you didn't have battery power or you didn't have the generator working or you couldn't recharge your battery for some reason, you couldn't use your radio. Um, and batteries... Now the yeah, like just like little side note, batteries at that time were extremely limited, um, which is actually why we haven't been driving electric cars for the last century, because we had electric cars before we had gas cars, but the battery tech wasn't able to support them. Do you yeah. have any idea how much different the world would be like and and, you know, all the oil wars and everything would have happened because, yeah, just mind-blowing okay carry on yep. batteries yeah, steam steam and electric cars both came before internal combustion engines internal combustion engines were more uh plausible for regular use because they didn't require the same level of maintenance and as laura said the battery tech just wasn't there you couldn't go long distance in an electric car but they both predated internal combustion engines so you know the next time somebody talks about those newfangled electric cars you can just smile to yourself um Anyway, back to the, the power companies. The interesting thing, because power was not considered a utility at that time, the power companies were not under any legal obligation to meet the needs of their customers round the clock. So for the power company, their big moneymaker was the interurban. Yeah, the residents could pay for their home hookups too, but the interurban was where most of their power went and it was not feasible, it was not um, profitable for them to continue running the power plant 24 hours a day if the trains weren't running in the middle of the night. So when the last train went out of service at the end of the day, they turned off the power. 
And the next morning when the first train started service, they turned the power back on. So you could have electricity in your home, but at whatever time the last train stopped running, be it, you know, 9 p.m. or 11 p.m. or whatever, the power just turned off every night at that time. And you didn't have power till the next morning. So but it wasn't um, a utility. It was a bonus right. service. It was a service. The transportation yeah, company. Yeah. <laughs> right. Uh, and, and the antitrust legislation that stopped the interurbans being run by the power companies or giving them substantial price cuts didn't go into effect until the mid-1930s. So uh, around 1935 is when the next stage, you know, we, we were starting to see more of this anti-monopoly antitrust legislation go through Congress, you know, from from the Gilded Age on because that was a problem. It really was. Uh, but the mid-1930s, they cut back on a lot of what we would consider monopolizing, uh, you know, vertical monopolies um, and resource monopolies. So um, in the 1920s, the interurbans reached their peak. People were using them just constantly because, you know, you were, you were through World War I at that point. People, the soldiers had come back home. You were having the, the roaring 20s and the baby boom. People were getting out of the house more. People wanted to go more places. People wanted to see the world. And so travel was a big thing. Um, you had more of an established middle class by then. So you had people who had disposable income who, you know, even if they couldn't afford a private car, they could still afford to spend some money on tokens and go someplace for the day. Um, then the 1930s happened, and the 1930s were really hard on mass transit, uh, partly because of the Great Depression. Uh, immediately, the the user base didn't have that disposal income anymore. Uh, they didn't have the same freedom to just pack up and go someplace for a weekend because everybody was starting to fret about money and maybe they were out of work and you had just a lot of social problems coming into play. You also, as I mentioned, that antitrust legislation went through in 1935, right in the middle of the depression. So the companies that had been scraping by in the depression years, suddenly their cut rate electricity went away. Now they can't afford to operate. Um, so it only took a few years for the interurbans to go out of operation. And um, locally in my area, they they started reducing their service in the, the early to mid-1930s, and by 1941, there was not a single interurban in service. Um, the last, there were, there was one interurban company still operating up to 1941. They had two cars. That was it. They, these are, you know, companies that used to run every track, every train leaving on the hour. They had two cars left in their fleet. Um, and uh, so, there was, there was an accident that it was not feasible to fix the cars for what they were making off of it. And the state looked at that and said, yeah, no, we're, we're not funding this. Um, the company went out of business and um, the only remaining rail service at that time, besides, you know, you had freight rail and you had passenger rail for long distance uh, that were still running on the, what had been the old steam lines, but um, you still had the trolleys, the trolley, the streetcar trolleys, you know, in, in downtown Indianapolis lasted until the mid 1950s. And then they went away too, because after world war II, Everybody immediately went into the the uh, American dream of you know you have your house and your car and you go on road trips and it was the heyday of Route 66 and you you were starting to see the interstate the Eisenhower interstate system went in so cars were what people wanted and nobody was using mass transit anymore because it was a luxury to have your own car why would you ever take a bus or a trolley or anything else if you had your own car um, and, and it's there were also some how much the government, the uh, state and local governments really, really pushed for automobiles instead of public transit. And of course, now we look at this and we're like, what were you thinking? <laughs> Why? Uh, but I remember reading, um, and I didn't look it up for this because uh, I didn't know I was going to want to talk about it, but I remember reading about a major city. I want to say it was in Texas, but don't quote me on that. Um, it was. 
Um, might have been Dallas. I'm not sure. Was it Dallas? That it was sold- a it was a large city in Texas. There are several. Yeah, there are a few. <laughs> it sold their entire city urban transit system to General Motors for the sum of one dollar. And then General Motors, of course, promptly shut it down because people needed to have cars. And um, and here we are, like in 2021, trying desperately to make public transit a thing. <laughs> and yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And the uh, the right of ways, as I said, they gave up the right of ways. And once the right of ways were gone, there's they, you can't get them back. You know, if you you sold your uh, right of way or you gave up the right of way and people put buildings on that property or laid streets on that property, you can't come in 50 years later and say, actually, we just decided we're going to put in a train system. So we're tearing down your building. Thanks. You can't do that. Um you know, they can seize people's farmland, put an interstate through their century-old fields, but that's a separate issue. Another rant for another time. <laughs> another rant. We'll, we'll save that rant for later. That's the after-hour hours rant. We, <laughs> we, we are not an um, entirely corruption-free nation in terms of our shady business deals going on. Um, in any case, but uh, so the, the interurban, despite the fact that it's forgotten about there there was about a 30 year period when that is where people that is how people traveled you know they didn't own cars yet unless they were very wealthy uh and they they weren't taking passenger rail the way we have like amtrak and diesel rail now uh the interurbans were how people got around it's how they got from town to town it's how they commuted it's how they got to different places and that era has been kind of just dropped because it wasn't the classic you know horse and carriage and coach time that we think of in the Victorian era. And it wasn't yet the roaring twenties where everybody had their convertibles and were playing, you know, jazz and great Gatsby and all of that. There was that entire house parties in the rumble seat. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Right. (laughs) I mean, I've seen those rumble seats, Um, but, but yeah, the interurban was a major part of life and it really shaped the way that a lot of the small towns in America developed. And at that time, small town life was still a big thing. There were big cities, but there were a lot of people not living in the big cities uh, because you had a lot of people engaged in careers that were not yet modernized and mechanized the way they are today. You know, you think about if you look at, and I, I live in an agricultural state, so I see a lot of farming going on. You know, we have farmers, so there are farmers all in in my area, Laura owns a farm that farmers are actively harvesting corn and soybeans are on. You know, she she lives in that that, that uh, house in the middle of the cornfield that the aliens attack. Yes. <laughs> um, but you know, a hundred years ago, you had farmers using horse-drawn equipment or using very limited. Uh, gas equipment or, you know, doing a lot of manual labor, you didn't have $750,000 combines coming through and doing an entire field in 10 minutes, you know, so, so it was a lot of, you, you had a lot more people doing that sort of work, and they lived in small rural farming communities all over the country. And those communities largely grew and survived and thrived thanks to the interurbans because again that's how they traveled to places that's how they got their electricity that's how they got things you know people going to town to buy stuff as opposed to having to take an entire day hitch up the horses to your wagon go into town and it took you several hours to get there you could just hop on the interurban and be there fairly quickly Uh, because your horses pulling your wagon are probably not going 70 miles an hour but the interurbans did um and the oh sorry Go ahead. So we have, we have a couple of we have a couple of chat questions and comments, but you can finish okay. your sentence, then I'll come back. Oh, I was just going to say um, I do want to talk about how they changed the landscape of cities as well, but we can do the questions first. 
Okay, so I'm just I'm gonna take these in reverse order. Masoka says, uh, always aliens. Can't the rural states be plagued by werewolves or mummies for once? So yeah. mummies are hard because we don't have a lot of mummies in US history that we didn't just like go steal from the Egyptians. Like that's yeah. yeah, like like most of our native hard. mummies were further south. Yeah, anyway. Yeah, the southwest um, could have mummies, but but there's not as much agriculture in the southwest. Yeah. We could have uh like ghost mammoths in Indiana. That would be, we should have some ghost mammoths. Ghost giant camels. Oh. We used to have native giant camels here. Yeah. Okay. All right. So we'll get on that. Um, I said this is an inspiration session. There we go. Um, jump back. Kyle has a question, and this is great because it looks like an AB question, and it's actually like an essay question. Um, Elena, in today's world, trains more important for transporting freight or passengers? Oh, okay. So I have opinions. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm first going to focus in on the word important. And I'm going to say it varies depending on whom, about whom you were speaking of the importance to. So trains are still used a lot for freight. Trains are still a critical part of the freight process in America. Um, I would say most people in the U.S. consider trains primarily freight movers. However, if you look at the rest of the world where they actually have functional, efficient passenger rail, I think it could be that we are just not, we collectively in the U.S. are not seeing the importance of trains as a potential passenger mover um, because we have, we have cars. We, Americans are obsessed with cars. We really are. Like you cannot function in most parts of America unless you have access to a car. You can't have a job. You can't get to the store. Our cities are not built for walking. Our cities are not built for pub public transit. But if you look at a lot of the problems we're having, you know, we're looking at, hey, there might be oil shortages during some periods of time. Hey, the price of oil has gone up and that's threatening people's livelihoods because they can't afford to get to work. Uh, hey, we have massive amounts of traffic, traffic, traffic problems. Is a thing. Yeah, we have in, in our city, we, we have we have road issues as well. Um, we have traffic jams for half the day in parts of the city because the roads aren't well designed to handle the volume of commuter traffic we have. And Indianapolis is a city of mostly bedroom communities. So you have the downtown area where people work during the day and then they all live 45 minutes away somewhere around the city. If we had commuter trains that could bring those people into downtown and eliminate 90% of that horrible traffic jam, think of how much better transportation would be. Think of how much less pollution there would be from you know, internal combustion vehicles just idling on the interstate for 40 minutes in a traffic jam. Um, so there, there are a lot of places where trains are used primarily for freight, but I think they should be used more for passenger and they just aren't because we don't see that as a priority in this country. Um, but then well, if you I mean, look again, at a place like... We systematically and deliberately disabled our passenger lines. Like that right. was a choice that we made. Wasn't and now choice, people don't one. see that as an option because right. a lot of a lot of people in the US... I'm not trying to think of it as... Like right. I suggested to somebody who was trying to get to a conference and she's like, well, I, I can't drive that far. And, and it wasn't that far. It was like... Okay. It wasn't that far. I'd say as an American, it would have been like an eight hour drive. It's not, not you and I are the outliers in our driving habits. Well, also like Americans and, and, you know, the English, we, we consider long distances totally. Anyway, the point yeah. is, um, and I said, well, jump on the train. And she's like, people can't take trains. And I'm like, oh, actually, <laughs> you know, but it's just like the average American that's not even like a menu item on transportation. Right. Um, mentioned real quick, Masoko says, uh, it's been interesting seeing California's struggle trying to develop a high-speed rail. As Elena just mentioned, the cities aren't always conducive to foot traffic 
or local commuter options. Yeah, you really can tell we're actually a fairly young country and a lot of our cities were built, you know, recently for built for automobiles. We're not ever built for walking or for horses. Yeah. Well, and and like again to use Indianapolis as an example, Indianapolis was a plotted city. It was planned. They, they chose a site, they hired a city designer, and the immediate downtown area, which is what the city was built, you know, when it was when it was first built in the early 1800s, that's what they built, um, actually is very logically laid out. The streets are a grid, there's a circle in the middle, and there's four diagonal streets going out to the corners, and it's very easy to get around in. But the problem is the city grew, and the periods of time in which the city was expanding were dominated by different types of technology. So the city, even though the core of it is extremely functional and very compact and very easy to walk around in, it's what makes it a great convention city. Once you get outside of that immediate downtown area, you can't move. There are no sidewalks. The, the streets yeah. are laid out weird. It's impossible to get from point A to point B. And a lot of the cities in the U.S. had that same problem where maybe when they were first founded, they were logically designed and you can walk around certain older parts of town. But then they came in and ran an interstate through the middle of the city. And now you can't get from one side of the interstate to the other because they didn't put sidewalks or crosses in or anything. You know, it's just, yeah. It's, it's, it's the difference. Like if you go to an older city, um, you know, any, any, any medieval city. And of course, everything now that once you get out into the suburbs, it's all sprawl because again, newer technology, that's what we plan for. Um, but if you go back to, um, older cities, I mean, my, my, John, my husband and I, um, were in Rome during a transportation strike. Okay. So the only way we could travel was on foot. We got everywhere we wanted to be during the transportation strike because, well, Rome was not, it was never designed for the automobile, right? Like you just walk from the forum to the next place because that's what you were doing. So, and yeah, that's, that's, that's the reason a lot of those cities have embraced public transit because you can't put a car down some of those medieval streets. There's just no room for it. No. So public transit makes more and sense. You certainly in can't put 30,000 cars on that block. Yeah. That yeah. is true. And, you know, some, there are cities in the U.S. that have public transit. Um, there are, there are a number of cities that have subways. Uh, you know, New York, it's pretty easy. You, you can't drive in New York. I've done it, but you don't want to. Um, you, it's, it's difficult to get around by car in many parts of New York because it's just too congested, but they do have an expansive subway system. So you can just hop on and go from point A to point B. But once you get out of New York City, you know, if you go to upstate New York, there is no public transit except for the Amtrak line that runs through the north part of the state. And that only runs on alternate days. So, you know, it's, it's really dependent on where you are. Um, but back to the question, I think rail rail traffic or um, rail service in general is important for both freight moving and for passenger systems uh, or passenger movement systems. But part of the problem is in the U.S., because the freight lines own the rails, our passenger uh, train services are never going to be able to compete with things like European or Asian train systems where the passenger lines are the main function. Uh, because even though technically they're not allowed to, since the freight lines own the tracks and the uh, the passenger lines run on at the mercy of the freight trains, if there's a freight delay, the passenger trains get delayed, then people don't want to take the train next time because they were late getting to their destination and, and it's messy. Yeah. But yeah, and Grace points out, and Grace is uh, is from New Zealand, so she points out on my travels, yeah, I've nice heard train, train whistles. Zealand. I'm sorry? 
There are nice trains in New Zealand. I ride there them. Are, there are nice trains in New Zealand. She sort of train whistles all over the U.S. and places where she couldn't take a train, which is sad because she likes train travel. I love train yeah. travel. I really do. Like, it's one of the best ways to travel. There so, are certain I, routes that you do have good train service on. Like, if you need to go from Chicago to Seattle, the Empire Builder is a great way to travel. It takes two and a half days, which is not as fast as flying, but it's really comfortable and you've got nice scenery and it goes right through the national parks and it's really nice. Yeah. Sharon Fox says, South Dakota used to have Amtrak, but we haven't for a long time. Yeah. So Amtrak, Am, Amtrak has been somewhat mishandled, uh, is a, a good way to put that in terms See, of making it deliberately a... deliberately scuttled. Our, yes. Yeah. Um, Amtrak got... There, there were some decisions made that probably were not in the best long-term interest of establishing a good, reliable passenger service. Um, now, if you go to the East Coast... There are actually a decent number of local trains that you can, you know, you could go from Boston to New York or something. And, and those trains tend to be fairly affordable, fairly reliable. They, they travel, you know, quickly and on time. Uh, but the long distance Amtrak travel is, even though I love doing it and I do it quite a lot, actually, because it's, it's a, I can work on the way to my destination, but then, you know, people can't bother me because I can turn off my phone. <laughs> oh no, I'm on a train. I can't hear you. Um, but the, the potential for delays, again, because of the freight lines or because of other things is high. So it's not something where, you know, if you need to be at your destination by a certain hour, fly, you aren't going to take a train because the train can always be late. And let's just um, clarify for a sec, like what, what we mean is the way things sorted out, this is the hugely, hugely condensed version is the passenger trains are running on railroad lines, which are owned by the freight companies. Well, when that was... <laughs> For reasons, okay, yeah. But when that was set up, um, the the government's idea was that if the freight trains delayed the passenger trains, then the passenger in the Amtrak could ask for compensation, and so that would keep everything balanced and shared. Except then the government's like, oh, actually, you can't ask for compensation. So the freight trains said, oh, you mean we can just use this line and put in a 10-hour delay and... There are no consequences. Okay. And um, so that's, yeah. And that has been, they've started to correct that recently, but that is where we went through this incredible period where Amtrak was not reliable. And that's the reason why. So, which hurt uh, Amtrak's reputation. It hurt Amtrak's yeah. profits. So then Amtrak had to be subsidized by the government. So then people were complaining, why are we paying government funds based out of, you know, coming out of taxpayer dollars to subsidize a failing because train line? Well, the reason it's failing is because automobiles and airplanes, but fine. We don't yeah. want to discuss that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah it's, it's, um, we've, we've got issues with that. But I'm going to grab Shai's comment about train travels. Amazing. Loved the Shinkansen from Kyoto to Tokyo. Yeah. The Shinkansen is the, um, is the bullet train. And, all, all of the Japanese trains are amazing. Then Shikansen are like the next level up and um, they are fast and they are luxurious and yeah, they're great. And that's a case where in Japan, trains are primarily used for passenger rail. There, there is much less freight hauling on train lines in Japan because that's the way everybody gets around. There are fewer cars and it's actually not uncommon for people in Japan to not even have a driver's license because they don't need one. They don't own a car. They live yeah. in cities where they can go anywhere on a train. Uh, yeah. and, and that's true in parts of Europe as well, depending on where you live. Um, but in the U S you, you have to have a car in almost all of the U.S. And obviously, you know, if, if you live in downtown New York and you work in downtown New York and you never leave the city, you might not need to own a car. You might not need to have a driver's license, but 
most places in the U.S. are set up like suburbs. It's it's actually the majority of the U.S. population lives in suburbs. So you might have to drive 10 or 15 minutes to get to a grocery store. Until a couple of years ago, when they opened a grocery a few miles from me, I had to drive 10 minutes to get to a grocery store. And I don't live that far out. Like I live in the city. <laughs> so that's just the way our cities are. That's, that's the way life is in America now. You can't just walk places. So, um, yeah. Real quick, because we were talking about world building, I do want to talk about um, the city layout. So oh, yeah. the interurban period, only the heyday only lasted about 30 years. But it was 30 years when there was also a lot of urban expansion going on. You started seeing cities getting larger. You had people starting to move from the outlying areas to the city to work. Uh, and so during that time, you had a lot of things built around the concept of interurban travel. And if you are in many cities, you can still find relics of the interurban. Uh, in some places, that's road layout where uh, like there's a there's a major road on the south side of Indy that the right of way for the interurban became a median between the two lanes of the street because the interurbans ran right down the middle of the street, just like a streetcar. They just were bigger and faster and had their own lane. Um, so you can you can still see the original one lane road on one side, then you have this grassy medium, some trees, and then you have like the four lane road where the road became a major thoroughfare later on, and they just expanded it on one side of the median. But that median is where the interurban ran, and some of the original traction line poles with the insulators are still running along that street. So you'll still see streets laid out like they were for the interurbans. There are also street names like in, in Indy, uh, just for example, we have streets that are called Stop 11, Stop 12, Stop 13. They never renamed them. The roads were named because that's where the interurban stopped between two towns. And then when the city expanded to that point, they just named the roads they built after the interurban stops. Um, a lot of times, if you're looking at sort of the, the community flavor for your stories and you have something where technology has come through, um, in in uh, my area where I live, there's a uh, building that was built in the 1890s, and it was a sort of a hardware store, general store. It did, it's been a lot of different things, but it was always in the same, owned by the same family and operated by the same family. And the interurban stopped near the store, but there was no actual interurban depot there. It was just a stop and you got off on the side of the road. But because the nearest building was this general store, all the people who wanted to ride the interurban would gather in the lobby of that store and wait for the interurban because there were windows they could watch. And when they saw the train coming down, they could go out and get on it. And that way they didn't have to stand out in the, the cold weather. And eventually the shopkeeper actually expanded the front of the store and put in what was basically a little breezeway with doors and glass. So people had more insulation from the weather when they were waiting for the interurban. So that shaped the way buildings were built. So a lot of times the technology and the phases of technology we see dictate how buildings are constructed, dictate how streets are laid out, dictate, you know, how the, the direction in which a town expands. Um, and if you if you look at buildings that were built, you know, prior to the 1930s or 40s, a lot of them have higher ceilings and they have transoms, those little windows that open over the door. Uh, Victorian houses frequently had a tower, so you would have a tower with high windows, and then the interior rooms had nine-foot ceilings instead of you know, modern ceilings are eight feet. Um, and then they would have transoms over the door. That was an early cooling system for your house because you would open the windows at the top of the tower and open all the transoms over the doors and the hot air would rise to the top of the ceiling and get pulled up by the air escaping out the windows because all the hot air rises to the tower. And that's how you kept your house cool. Once we had forced air, once we had air conditioning, and things like that and climate control, then all the ceilings dropped to eight feet. But the technology dictated the way the buildings were constructed um, because humans are actually pretty smart and they figured out how to do things even before they had technology to do things. 
<laughs> so uh, I do want to throw that out in terms of world building. What technology your world has will dictate what your world looks like. And even if it's not the current technology, if it was the technology 50 years ago or 100 years ago or 200 years ago, those impressions are still going to be around because that's how society works. Unless you had, you know, your, cars, your entire... roads are two horse butt wide. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah, the, the reason, and, and actually that affects train rails too. The reason rail cars have the wheels set at the exact width they do is because the standard was set based on the wagon ruts that were on the old Roman roads, which were caused by the width of two horse butts. So we're still using standards that were set in place based on horse technology. Yes. But yeah. Yes. Um, so those, those are important things to look at. How does the technology in the world you're creating, whether that's for a story or a game campaign or anything, how has technology shaped what your world actually physically looks like? Because that's and going to affect it. If you need exposition, you know, people standing around gabbing at, at the, at the overhang you know, waiting for the, the an urban to come by is way better than, as you know, Steve, you know, like, you know just dumping things like, you know, you have As you reason. know, Steve, 98 years ago when our town was called this and had this mayor and had this. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, you have a reason for people to be hanging out waiting for the public transportation, which is not something that maybe you were thinking you had that option to, to have people hanging out there. So we do have one more question from Kyle um, asking if there are any commercial maglev high-speed rail lines in the USA today. I wish. <laughs> um, supposedly, someone is looking into it. That is as far as we've gotten with maglev. Um, there have been some, I think, some successful experiments with it out west for very short distances. Uh Realistically, and the U.S. is a big country. I mean, it's not Russia big because Russia has 16 time zones and we only have four. But we do have four time zones. Like, we are a fairly large country. So there are lots of parts of the country where it is just geographically not feasible to try to power maglev for the distance and over the terrain that we, ha we would have to do. I think maglev is very feasible for small uh, more local, like you have the East Coast commuter stuff. I think that's that's more likely to happen. I don't know that we're going to get the kind of long distance rail like, you know, we've got Amtrak lines running from one coast to the other. You can go from New York to LA or something. You have to take a couple of jogs in there. Uh, Chicago to Seattle, you know, that sort of thing. But it's, I don't think we're going to see a whole lot of commercial venues for long distance maglev travel just because it's going to cost so much to put in and and to run, to operate. Excuse me. Um, and we're right now, America, it's a great country, great country. I like living here. <laughs> um, but w like we are still having people fighting the transition to alternate forms of electric power. There are still people out protesting. How dare you take away our coal burning power plants? And we're like, actually, statistically, your coal plants are poisoning your populace. And here's all the cases of people living around the coal plants with lung disease directly tied to the coal plants. And people are still resistant to the idea of replacing coal with solar, Change wind, really you know, anything else. Yeah. Like there's, yeah. there is a huge contingent of the populace in the U.S., that does not want clean energy. That's that's just we. It's the way it's always been done. We're going to have our dirty energy and like it. And so the even the concept of maglev for anybody to want to put funding that is not just private experimental funding into that, you're going to see a lot of people fighting it. And it's it's kind of. Mm, <laughs> America is a very diverse country. We have a lot of different opinions. We have a lot of people who are very vocal about their different opinions, but it means it's hard to get stuff done. 
Yeah. Because you have to try to make everybody happy. We're going to keep, we're going to keep talking. We're going to keep educating. Ask me about my solar powered electric car, please. Okay. Yeah. Um, We do need to, um, we do need to wrap up because Elaine, uh, well, actually I should ask, are you streaming tonight too? I am streaming tonight. uh, But I did, I did post on my social media that it, would be you know whenever this wraps up <laughs> because my my channel hosts your channel when I'm offline so ah, in theory okay. if somebody logs onto my channel in they three minutes and says, <laughs> they can see that I'm here yeah so, right. so well, we, you know, it, it is not a we have to be off by 7:59. okay um well we could start to wrap up so I would say um the real salties I see your question let's wrap uh, our topic for tonight, and then I can come back and hit that after we let Elena go, uh, since that's a off-topic writing question. Um, so if there are any remaining questions about transportation, world building, uh, rail, equine influenza, robber barons, or electric cars, we can I can speak at length on robber barons as well. I have a whole presentation on how the Gilded oh, Age yeah, shaped well, literature. She, she can get quite eloquent on robber barons, and I'm actually probably going to bring that back in at some point. So, yes, Fifi Worldsmaker, we will definitely raid Elena's channel once we give her a chance to get up and running. So, <laughs> yes, thanks. Thank you. That we would really appreciate you guys uh, sticking around for that raid. Um, yes, Kyle, I introduced us at the beginning. We are siblings. So, um, we, are, we are sisters. We are not twins. We get that question. There are not a lot, that many people with this name. We can spell it, therefore, you know it's ours. Yeah. So, oh, hey, Joe, thanks uh, for stopping by. Yeah. Um, so, okay. So I'm not seeing uh, other questions coming in. So let's let you go, Elena, and then I okay. will answer uh, the writing questions and then we will raid you. Whee! Okay. okay. <laughs> I'm going to go turn some lights on because it's actually starting to get dark in here. Okay. So, oh, and if right. you have not been in the habit of following Elena, um, she is not going to speak on trains when on her stream. Uh, she's actually doing a sponsored cosplay build. Um, from Tales of Vesperia. And oh my gosh, I just totally blanked on his name. What's, who are you building? Flynn. Flynn. I was like, I could have gotten this out of multiple choice, but I just blanked. Um, so, uh, so she's building out a bunch of uh, armor and other thermoplastic fun things. And that's, uh, so it's a Today I'm mostly sewing magnets on stuff, but you know. (laughs) What was that? I'm sorry. I said today I'm mostly sewing magnets on stuff, but but you know, if you have, I I am totally open to Q&A. Yeah, so like if you just want to throw questions at me while I'm sewing magnets on stuff, that's cool too. Yeah, and uh, they can be questions about magnets because she knows so much. How do they work? I'm not answering that one. (laughs) All right, Um, so let's let you go and then I will answer um, this other question and then uh, we will raid you. So, okay. Oh, um, oh, yes, I'm going to go ahead and throw into the chat. She is, and sewing is half the battle. Let me see if I can. type and talk at the same time. All right. I, hopefully that is going into the, I think that's, yes, I, think I, I see spelled it. that right. Okay, good. Yep. <laughs> um, and uh, <laughs> yes, yes. She will tell you that glue gunning on your own body is a bad idea because she I will tell you from personal, personal experience experience on that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Elena and I started cosplaying in 2003. Is that right? Two. 2002? Two. Yeah, some mm-hmm. freaking long time ago. 19 and years. Yeah, if, if there is a way to do it wrong, we can tell you. And then we also, like, she has a whole stream on how to do it right as well. So please uh, follow her for that. So, okay. <laughs> so, okay. Thank you, Elena, for giving us a uh, great interurban background. And hopefully people will find that useful in their own world creation. 
And um, yeah, I'm gonna let you go. So everybody wave goodbye to Elena. Whoosh. Okay. Um, all right. And then uh, I'm going to let Elena take off and get set up. We'll raid her in just a moment. And then I'm going to jump back to, uh, where is it? Where is it? Where is it? In the chat. Um, oh, the Real Salties is asking about um, Wattpad. Um, so the answer is it depends. And, um, and that's not a terribly helpful answer, but it is the most accurate answer. Um, if you, especially if you are, you know, getting started, you haven't built a, a huge audience yet, um, and you're looking for feedback, Wattpad's probably a perfectly uh, a good venue for that. Um, if you are trying to become a commercial writer, writing professionally and getting uh, paid for your work, uh, it's extremely hard to get traction with that on Wattpad. And if you're building an audience on Wattpad and then you're like, but now I have a book for sale over here, it's most of those people are not gonna follow you from a non-paying platform to a paying platform. So that's a long way of saying it depends. Um, but especially if you are, and I have no idea, I'm sorry, um, you know, where you are, what you're doing at this point. Um, but I would say if you are not making you know, solid money as a writer at this time and just looking for, I want to, I want to experiment with this. I want to play with this. I want to, um, get feedback on my work. Um, you know, as you know, let people leave comments and things, then yeah, look into that. It could be a good option. So hopefully that, hopefully that answers your question. Um, yeah. And so next week, uh, we'll cycle back around again on our weekly themes. Um, next week is a business topic and we're going to be talking about Evernote. Yay! Um, that is a topic by request. Um, and Evernote is uh, software that comes in multiple tiers. There's, you know, free tiers, there's uh, paid tiers. And it is basically a, let me dump all of my brain into this digital memory account so that I don't have to take up my mental RAM in remembering things. It's similar to OneNote and some other things. Evernote's my favorite, and I'm going to tell you all the ways I use it and all the tips and tricks for it. That's not true. There's way too many tips and tricks, and I'm not going to be able to tell you all of them. But uh, but I'm going to give you an overview and explain what I use it for in writing and then in just managing my entire life. Yes, business stuff, business stuff, math stuff. Yes, all the things. Um, yes, uh, Evernote does have a free, free tier. That is um, definitely what I would recommend to get started. It has some advanced features that are only available on the paid tiers, but honestly, you're probably not going to need that at this point if you're not already using Evernote. The major drawback to the free tier uh, for most people is that you can only sync, I believe, between two devices, whereas I sync between three devices regularly, uh, meaning anything I add on my phone instantly appears on my co computer desktop and vice versa and such. So um, if you are a person who has a tablet and a phone and a laptop and a desktop computer and you know all the things going on, um, then you, you're not going to be able to have everything synced across the board at the free level. But we'll talk more about that um, next week and have all the things. Grace says, I need it. Oh my gosh. Like, Ever, I, I just, I can't tell you how much I rely on it. <laughs> like I've used it for so long and it has definitely been uh, a lifesaver in so many situations. So anyway, so next week we will talk about Evernote. What else is going on? Um, did I, did I make myself any notes to share? I don't remember. Oh, um, I just, I'll give you the quick heads up. I have, um, an unofficial 
monarch butterfly farm going on. <laughs> if you uh, want to see way too many pictures of caterpillars eating milkweed and chrysalises and monarchs uh, hatching, and do they hatch? I don't know, emerging from a chrysalis, um, then check out my Instagram, which is Laura Van Arendonkba. Like it's pretty straightforward. You just have to copy paste it so you don't have to try to spell that. And I've been updating that pretty regularly with, uh, with caterpillar pictures. So there you go. And yeah, that is it. Let's hop over and raid Elena. Yes. Yeah. Shyman Fox. I saw that you, um, said you had been, you know, formally, uh, mine was completely accidental this year. I planted some milkweed, um, and I'm, I'm like not even really a gardener. I just needed something positive and productive to do in pandemic spring. And um, so I'm like, oh, pollinator garden. Oh my gosh, so many caterpillars. <laughs> and so, um, so I've been out like desperately scavenging for additional milkweed and all of that. I'm going to do some milkweed harvest uh, this weekend. So, okay. Um, so we're going to hop over and raid Elena. Hey guys, thank you so much for joining me. I will see you next week. Take care. Be excellent to each other. Thank you for listening. You can find details on the weekly live stream, upcoming guests and topics, subscription and support information, and more at lauravab.com. Your shares, reviews, and support are very much appreciated. Until next time.